Amen. This is the Word of God. Amen. May God write on our hearts. Amen. James is so good to stand on its own as a, in a reading. Just teaches. Such a clear, committed teacher. I hope I can follow him <laughs> uh, this morning. We're talking about suffering source. It's kind of a part two of last week. Last week I started telling you about Corey Timboon. Um, making it through the concentration camps of Ravensbrook and how faith uh, and faithfulness and suffering can really get you through the darkest of things. And today is a bit of a part two. And I want to pick up the same time of history and tell you this morning um, from our, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, was arguably becoming the greatest Christian mind of the 20th century in 1940. He wrote the following quote that year, 1940, on the topic of our sermon today, suffering, okay? And listen to this quote, quote, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are little blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect, end quote. It was true then, it remains true today. But for Lewis, what was written and taught by himself in 1940 had to be believed 20 years later. 16 years after that quote was written, in the book, The Problem of Pain. So if you want to know what that was from, it's from the, his book called The Problem of Pain. Lewis married uh, Joy Davidman, and he enjoyed four years of marriage to her. Then, in July of 1960, he stood by her grave after losing her to bone cancer when she was 45. Can you imagine the pain? Some of you can. Maybe you face such loss in life. Lewis's private journals and his reflections on the grief that he experienced after that moment can be read in a book he also wrote called A Grief Observed. A Grief Observed. He writes this in the introductory comments. Quote, no one, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet, I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. There are moments, most unexpectedly, when something inside me tries to assure me that I don't really mind so much, not so very much after all. Love is not the whole of a man's life. I was happy before I ever met H. That's his reference to his wife. He continues, quote, I've plenty of what are called resources. People get over these things. Come on, I shan't do so badly. One is ashamed, though, to listen to this voice. But it seems for a little to be making out a good case. Then comes a sudden jab of red-hot memory, and all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace, end quote. 
It's a deep reflection on grief, right? It's a bit different than the confidence of 20 years ago's C.S. Lewis as he taught on suffering, whereas this quote shows even those who teach on suffering must also experience suffering. I encourage all of you to pick up A Grief Observed. Read it. Maybe consider watching the film that's based on the story I'm telling you now called Shadowlands, starring Anthony Hopkins. It would make for a wonderful night. But this sermon is not about C.S. Lewis. For his is just one pilgrim example of what we all face as we face suffering. Suffering is earthly, like that quote. Suffering is ours, right? It belongs to us. Right? And in that sense, it's, it's a helpful notion to read things like I read you this morning. But it's limited. Accounts of suffering, like Lewis, are needed, but they leave us wanting for peace. No, our sermon this morning in James is actually the opposite of that. It's not earthly, it's heavenly. It's beyond us. It belongs to God and it's given to us and it comes directly to us to give us peace if we believe. Had I known that the, uh, this introduction uh, would contain a C.S. Lewis story when we made the title today, I would have titled this sermon, The Ant in the Furnace. That's what I would have titled it. The Ant in the Furnace. Isn't that creative, artistic, and beautiful? But instead, it's titled Suffering Source. How dull, right? But when I wrote this sermon and I was thinking about this outline, I realized something about suffering and grief. In the middle of suffering and grief, often the sufferer demands art, ironically. They demand eloquence. They demand beauty, whether it be harsh or grotesque even in its explanation. Talk to anyone who's ever struggled with depression, and you'll talk to them about it, and they will, they will talk about how dead and miserable they are with the most eloquent of words. It's a mutilated art. It really is. You can find any song in any pop culture that delves into the heart of the sufferer, and you'll see in it imagery and all this stuff. The ant in the furnace, you know, what you think you need. Because that's the top of your mind. Right? That's the immediate cry after being pinched. But that's not what your soul needs. Not ultimately. You need something more simple. I'm afraid to tell you if you're searching for art, uh, for help in the midst of your suffering, you don't get that in the Word of God. You get simple. You get the same. You get boring, if you will. You get catechizing. You get reliable. You get grit. That's what James gives you today. When he identifies suffering's source, he gives a simple approach. One we would do good, even frustratingly so maybe, to take as, by faith and apply to our own sufferings in this life. James gives a very simple approach. He shows you two people, the blessed man and the blinded man. So two points today. The blessed man and the blinded man. And in this little passage, James shows you in both of them who they are and what they think. Simple enough, right? Let's talk about the blessed man in just a moment, okay? Context. Let's start here. Before we begin, some simple context is going to help us get our bearings. You just heard the text read. And, uh, good job, Brianna. You did a great job. But also, you're smart enough to see, as you heard it read, a contrast throughout our section of sacred scripture. Verse 12, look at it. 
reminding us of verse 2 through 4 last week. It contrasts today for us a blessed man with, look at verse 16, a deceived man, right? But do not be deceived. You see that? Examining them both as specimens of suffering. Thus, our commitment to the simple outline today is understood as we observe both men, the blessed, and we'll call them the blind. That way we can have two Bs, you know, because we're Baptists, right? There's a third B. But really, though, the blessed and the blind. But a word of warning every week as we're in James. I don't know if I'll do this every time, but I feel the burden to do it again for context today. This morning, we study two Christians for both points of our sermon. And that's important to note for this context. The blessed man and the deceived man we study, they both think and act in our text as those who are born again. This is crucial. Let me show it to you in the text. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you see that? Let me teach it to you for this context and as an invitation. James' way of saying, when he says that, this is his way of saying, these lessons, as we learn them, are for the church, his creatures. You see it at the end of 18 there? His creatures. They're for the church. The church who have recently believed there are first fruits. Look at this verse as I say these things. The gospel for James, so the church who have recently believed, first fruits, who believe what? The gospel, word of truth in that verse, having been born again, that is changed by God. Do you notice it says he brought us forth, God brought us forth, birth. According to foreknowledge, God has chosen to reveal himself. Notice 18, of his own will. Now why do I point this out to you this morning at the start? Because last week, I paused to sincerely ask you, if you're here today, have you heard and have you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Adult and children alike in this room, do you know Jesus Christ who was born of the virgin? Like you born, but not like you, Jesus was sinless. That he lived a perfect and obedient life to God. Not like you, Jesus was faithful until the very end of his life. That he died on the cross. That this was for you and for your sin, he suffered on your behalf. That he rose from the grave. That gives hope to you if you believe just as Jesus rose, so one day you will also rise from the dead unto eternal life with him. That he ascended and reigns now. Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's at the right hand of the Father. Those who believe in him will join him for everlasting life. That Jesus will return. One day he is coming. Are you ready? If you have questions here today in any of the things I just talked about, seek answers soon. Believe the good news of the gospel today. We're here to help you. Children, we're here to help you. We're here to help you figure out what it means to believe those things I just listed. Adults, we're here to help you. Your fellow man and woman are here, me and Blake as elders. This treasure of the gospel is not just believed once and forgotten. It's the, it's the crown, y'all. It's the jewel. It's everything. 
We want to guard it faithfully. We want to share it abundantly. Maybe God would use this sermon for His church to help you. However, let's move on to it, right? Because the rest of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's believe these truths together. Let's talk about the blessed man. The blessed man, point one. This is, let's talk about who he is and let's talk about how he thinks. Now, who is he? Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You heard that read. Okay? He stands the test and he seems to receive what? The crown of life. It's eternal life, which God has promised eternal life to those who love him, who love God. Now, who is the blessed man in suffering? Just ask yourself that from this text. Look, he's the steadfast one. He's standing the test and he's heaven bound. It's easy to understand, isn't it? How do we expand this? Let me tell you something. We don't because often that's your problem. <laughs> often the church falls head over heels into its own ignorance when it tries to expand out on, well, what's the crown of life? Can I do things to get crowns better than the guy next to me? Can I do things to try to speed up when I get the crown of life? Do I do things when I try to delve deep into understanding how good works, bad works play out under grace by faith alone? Listen, you go too deep, too far, too you know, committed to understanding the reward you have, and you fail to understand what you've actually been given already. Eternal life is in view here. The, best, the blessed man, that's who he is. He is a justified one who will one day receive the ultimate pardon. How do we expand this? We really don't. That's often our problem. Because, you know, pain seeks in suffering, right? Remember, he is remaining steadfast under what, guys? Under suffering, under trial. See that word? Under the test. And in this verse, verse 12, remember, 2 through 4 is actually in view again here by James. You can look at verses 2 through 4 again later. But in suffering, the pain of suffering, it seeks to multiply or mutilate or misshapen the promises of God. Maybe it chooses to get you thinking about the promises of God in an unhelpful way. Like I already said, not. Don't do that. Stay simple here. One day is eternal life. But oftentimes it's in the opposite direction, right? It makes you begin to think that the mutilated, the misshapen, and the, the failure to communicate or connect the promises of God to your life is evident of some serious, serious difficulty that really goes beyond what the actual difficulty God has you in is all about. Be weary of this. James is showing you here who the man of suffering, the faithful one, is in this. One who is faithful is not flashy. One who's faithful, they're not flippant about what they're going through. One who's faithful is not futile in their thinking. None of those things are present. No, the one who is faithful in suffering, they are, James says, a stalwart. Okay, they're like a steadied, simple, anchored person. This is the goal of Christian suffering, to be as this man mentioned here is, the blessed man. Okay, that's who he is, but how? Well, consider next how he thinks. Oftentimes, if you want to know how who's, you want to know who someone is, get them talking, right? For out of the abundance of their heart, the mouth speaks. What we, what we think we say. Now, to do that, we chop our text up this morning, and you students of the Word will be bothered by that, but just rest easy, okay? James is a preacher. We know if examining this in order that we need to hold on to the reality I just talked about. You need to hold on to the blessed man while we endure the opposite. 
And maybe in our reading, we would need to you know, go back and reread by the time we get to how that faithful man thinks and dwells. But for our time, uh, we look to verse 17. How does the blessed man who loves God regard his suffering as a Christian, as a child of his promise-keeping God? He thinks, actually. Look at verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Statement. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How is the blessed man faithful in trial? He knows who he is. How? Look how he thinks. He dives into the person of God when the trials of life come. He dwells on the holy goodness of God when everything is bad. He deepens his understanding of God. The person in trial who's faithful thinks to himself, what do I have in this life that's my own? What do I really have? The man who's lost everything, who honors and glorifies God says, even what I've lost was never mine, right? Soul, don't you remember? Every good gift, everything I've ever had. Notice the phrase, every good gift, every perfect gift. These are summaries of all that you hold dear. That's the point here. Suffering seems like an attack on all you hold dear to yourself, does it not? When suffering shows up and it claims your health, and you are tired and sick and hurting and miserable, and that's all you feel, suffering is saying, I have your health. And you would think, oh no, suffering has my health. Where'd my health go? But the man who says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from God where there's no change, well, hold on. If God was good and with me through the health, then God is still good and with me through the sickness. And so I will look beyond the present reality and root myself there. He thinks that way. Suffering touches the untouchable. It breaks the unbreakable. It moves the unmovable. Suffering seeks to kill the undying, and therefore it can be disorienting unless you learn to think like a Christian. <laughs> James is showing you that a Christian can think through death about life. Think of the martyr here. Suffering seeks to kill what is undying. Think of the martyr. Think of someone that has been called out to die for their faith. They must believe in Christ or perish. They choose to believe in Christ. They are burned at the stake. They are cut in two. They are torn asunder. Ridiculed, mocked, let out on the ice to walk until they freeze to death. I mean, we could go into the gruesome details, right? But what is a blessed man thinking as he steps onto the ice with every step? With every ounce of pain, with every moment of hunger pain, with every eventual going to a frozen death, what would a rejected, cast-aside believer think? Every good and perfect gift is from above. Even this present suffering is coming to me from the Father of lights. My darkness is lightened by God's presence. Everything around me gets darker. Everything within me gets brighter. Because why? My God's unchanging. He'll be with me in every step. And this is how we get the strange mystery from church history of some burning alive even, crying out with great forgiveness for their persecutors. This is how God has chosen at many times to advance His gospel. That's why we say, the, I think it was Tertullian famously who said, it's the blood of the martyrs 
that is the seed of the church. Why? Blessed men and women in suffering. Here's how one commentator explained these notions, the way faithful men and women compare to most men and women. Quote, Many people have pondered the problem of pain. Few pause to ponder the problem of happiness. Why should a holy God give restful days, a happy home, healthy and dear children to a sinner like me? Likewise, it is true that the Lord visits with hardships and sorrows so that he may draw near to us and ask, do you still love me? End quote. Well, that's sharp, isn't it? Quick to call out about our pain. But what about in the abundance, pausing to consider the problem of happiness? It's a wonderful way to put it. Let me ask you a question, church. Are you listening? And you're suffering to God who allows it and ask the question of you, do you still love me? Can you hear him? Or are you like Peter? This side of the cross, denying God three times. Ashamed, even by a little girl. This side of the cross, death, resurrection, resurrected Jesus, John 21 on the seashores. <laughs> there is Peter with his head down. And what does Jesus say when he comes to him? What does he ask him? Peter, do you love me? And theologians agree. It's no, it's no coincidence that, that Peter is asked this three times by Jesus. What a reminder, right? Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do, do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know. Feed my sheep. Peter, I'm going to ask you again. Do you love me? You know, and many have gone to that, and when Peter finally breaks down, it seems, and he says it, they think, oh, that's the point. You know, eventually, in your unbelief, God will break you down. And that, that's half of it. But another half of it is, isn't Jesus teaching Peter how to think? Isn't he catechizing him? Teaching him about the blessed man? You love me? Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter writes, and, and he, like, God was catechizing him, burying deep in him something that could get him to write 1 Peter 5, where he says, I tell you, like a fellow elder among you, submit yourself to the mighty high hand of God. Why? At the right time, he may, he may raise you, right? Well, Peter did that with his life, and he writes as one who's like a shepherd to sheep through his whole epistle. What happened? He was taught how to think. He was taught how to think in suffering, thinking like a Christian. That same commentator has an uh, illustration that I quoted a while ago. He says, you know, an elderly man, imagine a man who's bereaved of his wife. In other words, he's a widower and he's lost his wife. And he says to someone when they ask him, how's he doing? Oh, I'm a fine. It must be. He's trying to make sense of the situation. It must be that the Lord still has something for me to do. Else, why has he left me here? And someone replies to him, he's not left you to do anything except to love him still. We don't think that way in suffering. We think, okay, it has a purpose that I can control. My wife's gone, this bereaved man, and therefore I must have a mission still. And God shows up and says, no, no, no. Do you love me still? That's the test. Do you remember? Every good and perfect gift comes from my Father. There is no variation or shadow due to change in Him. My Father is the Father of lights. Are you believing? James wants to show up and ask that. 
Those who are faithful to Christ, even unto death, have heard God say that He tests. They have experienced his, uh, the sufferings He allows. They've been refined with that suffering. They've understood God allows evil and yet remains utterly good and dependent. And they're still believing you're still loving and you still love me. Church, are you suffering in your job this morning? Are you suffering in your marriages this morning? Are you suffering in your family? Are you suffering in your commitments? Are you suffering in the relationships with Christ, in your relationship with Christ today? Maybe it's self-inflicted. Maybe it's circumstantial. Respond with this blessed man in the text today. Receive what can bond your soul to God, even if the body or the circumstances rip you apart. If you are not suffering, another question for you before we move on to point two. Will you be made ready by this today? Respond today by letting this blessed man's example seep into your bones. That's why you come and hear me preach every week. It ain't for me. Okay, you do it every week and you do it for about an hour. I'm trying to cut it down. But why? So that it'll seep into your bones. We got to be a people that get this down deep. We're not good at that. And thank God, God knew us. So he said, gather every week <laughs> and open this thing every week and seek understanding every week. And then when you split up and you, and you go out there, try to do it together Tuesday nights at 7, right? Like do it, right? Go get coffee, get lunch, spend time, call each other, text each other. Surround yourself with the witness of the word. Why? Because you need to be made ready. Suffering will come. It will come. Will you be ready? In suffering, the faithful are ultimately after a change in their heart and their mind. They're not after a change in their circumstances. That's kind of the summary of this. Said in my own words, right? The blessed man that's staying steadfast in these trials, the one who dwells on these things about God, I'll say it again. It is a person who is content to receive from God what they receive. They're ultimately not after a change of their circumstances. They're after a change of the heart and mind. Is that you in suffering? If so, you're the blessed man. So that is the blessed man. That is how he thinks. Let's talk about the other man that's really got more scripture here paired with him. The blinded man. The blinded man. Although the blessed man's example should be enough, the Bible comes to our aid by showing us in more verses this morning that when we fail to be the blessed man, it is because we are blinded by something. We're blinded by something. So we're going to contrast the blessed man of verse 12, explained to us in 17. And we're going to contrast that in the verses of 13, 14, 15, and the first words of verse 16, if you look there. The blinded man. Let's talk about who he is. Well, look, 13 through 15 deal immediately with how he thinks because it's being contrasted with the blessed man. But if you look at the start of 16, you identify his character and who he is pretty clearly. So again, 16a, James warns, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You see that. When we are deceived, we have on blinders to the promises of God already preached in point one. Now, that is who the blinded man is. He's a deceived person in that moment. Okay? Rather than believe them, the promises, like an anchor that goes down deep into the, red, uh, the rocks of the shore, right? rather than, than have that anchor for the soul in a storm, this man, he has it, but he's allowing slack in the line. So he's not got the anchor pulled up tight to where he'll barely move on the pivot, right? 
He's let out a lot of line. So when the winds and waves come, what's happening? He's getting blown way over here. And then way over here, we remember him from chapter 1 last week. He's deceived, is what James is telling us. Last week, I briefly mentioned to you the fictional creation of John Bunyan, Puritan writer, separatist, Baptist, a baller. Um, but he wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. I told you about that last week. And I told you briefly about the story of Christian and Hopeful. Those are two characters in the book. When they get trapped in the castle of doubt. Indulge with me a moment to consider them again. To help you define our deceived man in the text, okay? So Bunyan writes of two followers of Jesus in this story. And they're on a pilgrimage to the celestial city, which is like heaven. They're walking. That's symbolic of their lives together as the church, as the people of God. They're walking and trying their best to follow the narrow path. Well, in the story, they, they come across really hard terrain. It's very difficult to walk on. Bunyan writes this, quote, Although they continued on, they wished for a better way. Now, for our purposes of using this illustration, just consider that tiny notion alone, okay, in this story. There they are on a hard path. It's not easy to walk. I want you to think about what he just said. They wished for a better way. Do you hear that? That's innocent, right? They're not compromised. They're not absolutely despairing in the dungeons of Castle Dow. No, 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 that's to come. Right here is the very first opportunity for them to realize what's happening. But Bunyan shows us that they very just, they wished for a better way. And they keep walking. Well, what do you know? You know what appears? If you've never read the story, let me tell you. So there they are walking on the hard path. And right beside the, long, the, the hard path is this thing called Bypath Meadow. The ground is obviously better. It's got grass. It's got you know, beautiful foliage. And Christian says, oh, hopeful. We're so tired. Can't we just step onto that? And Hopeful's like, hold on. I don't know if that's a good idea, Christian. We were supposed to, we're supposed to stay on the narrow way. And Christian and them talk, and what do they convince themselves of? They can do that because it runs parallel with the way. Sure, there's a little dividing wall, but it runs parallel for the most part. And so they take it. Not so bad to compromise a little bit, right? They wished for a better way. They got a better way. And they can still see the way unto eternal life. Well, on that path, they see a man ahead of them named Vainglory. If you read this book, and I, I'm, this is a huge plug for Pilgrim's Progress next to your Bible, because if you read it, all the characters are named after things that tell you a lot about what's going on. What does Vainglory do? He's always out there in front. He's a vainglorious person. He's always doing the right thing. And so he gives assurance to Christian and hopeful. We must be going the right way. Look, another pilgrim's going that way. Before you know it, the beautiful weather changes and a storm comes. And all they can hear, they can't see him, but all they hear of vainglory is that he falls into a pit. They hear a cry of death and he's gone. And now they're left there and a deluge is upon them. It is pouring rain, thunder and lightning. They don't know what to do. They know they've made a wrong turn. They turn around and try to go back, but the floodwaters have risen. There is no way back and they must wait out the night. Suffering. Oh, but get this, it's not over. Night comes, they lose sight of the man, he falls into the pit, the floodwaters come, and then morning comes, and with it they have hope, right? They hope with the morning they can see back toward the path, get back on the narrow way, and go. 
But they have now crossed into the area where giant despair lives. And he's a mean giant. He loves to prey on pilgrims. Despair shows up. He scoops up Christian and hopeful they cannot escape. And he carries them off into his territory, into his castle, locked behind the bars of the dungeon in Castle Doubt. You see how this works? The giant shows up multiple times, telling Christian and hopeful, leaving a sharp knife in front of them and saying, look, you know the misery that you're in. I'm going to leave this knife here and I'm going to go away. And they entertain it. To his shame, Christian entertains the idea of ending his own life. Hopeful tells him, Christian, we cannot do that. In that dungeon, contemplating the worst a Christian can think is the deceived and blinded man. Christian despairs. He doesn't know what to do. Now that's who he is. In that moment, that's who he is. So he perceives it. In the moment, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, right? But in the moment, deception has taken root in place of faith. Doubt is ruling. It's surrounding like a castle dungeon. It seems like there's only one option, sin. Now, in contrast to the blessed man's thoughts of God, James wants you, do not be deceived, my brothers. But if you are deceived, he wants you to understand how, how a deceived person thinks. So we'll leave Bunyan there for a minute and we'll look back at this text and see in verse 13. You want to read the mind of a, of, a, of a man, of a Christian man or woman who has given up for a reality check, right? They've given up. Seems like they are only deceived. They're only caving under the suffering. How do they think? Look, verse 13. James teaches, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. There you go. You just read the mind of a deceived person. Someone who's deceived would say something like, this is God's fault. <laughs> I'm being tempted by God. But James continues, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. How do the faithless think in trials of suffering? James goes straight for the root. This is God's fault, not mine. They, those who are deceived and are continuing in their deception, what do they do? They think someone else is to blame. They think someone else is to blame. They shift blame. And when they cannot blame circumstances or others or themselves adequately, they will eventually do what? They'll blame God. Now, we may not get this at first since it is so pure, right? Remember, James is like straight to the heart. But consider your wrong confessions in suffering if you've had them. Okay? Whether self-inflicted your suffering or circumstantial, something's happened to you, often... You and I would blame our circumstances, would we not? Oh, this is so hard for me to go through. If only my boss would stop being. Parenting is so hard. If, if my kids would just. I'm done with marriage. I'm done with this marriage. They don't care. We go to. We go outside, we point. And if it's not to blame circumstances, others, maybe it turns inward. Some horrible bent where increased 
suffering of condemnation of oneself being raised up would somehow like minimize and take away the suffering. It would, it would just do something about it. So we internalize. We're like Christian. I'm the only one that can do this. I hate everyone else. Maybe it's pride, right? Maybe it's some sickening weakness. So we blame circumstances, we blame others, we blame ourselves, and yet all of our sin is directed at God, finally. And sometimes deception gets so bad that we actually begin to call God a liar. James later on is going to pick this up. Later on he's going to say, watch your tongue. You know why? Because with it, oh, you bless God, and with it you curse man who was made in his image. Again, we're back to thinking, right? The deceived man can't think. What does he think? He's like Adam in Genesis. God comes to confront him directly. Adam, God says, who told you that you were naked in Genesis? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave, you gave to me. Poor me. She gave it to me, who you gave to me, her. And yeah, I ate it. Oh, Adam, it's so backwards. Your father's coming to you. The first cry should be what? We all know. I ate it. I did it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Deceived people don't think that way. Deceived moments say things like, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, but it's everyone else's fault, God. <laughs> Or I can't get over how much I've sinned against her or I've sinned against him or I've sinned against them. I can't get over how much my sin is. I'm so incapable of being forgiven because I'm so wrong. It sounds like a good confession, right? But it fails to acknowledge that it's not your hurt against yourself. It's not your hurt against others. It's not your hurt against the world or responsibilities that you have. Ultimately, it's the hurt you've dealt against God that you won't deal with. So the deceived man says, I don't want nothing to do with that because when I start to think about that, I get, and if I continue to think about it wrongly, I just put my middle finger to the air and say, God, you're wrong. It's your fault. And instead, the right way is to say what David said. The great king, after sinning, after being deceived for months, finally living in his sin, he as the blessed man finally comes to a right confession. And he says what? I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. Forgive me a sinner. Now you would ask in that story, if you go study Psalm 51 and the corresponding passages in Samuel, you would know David has sinned against a man named Uriah. He took his wife. He had him killed. The nation of Israel has a deceiving, lying king on the throne. And you would know that for him to say against God and God alone, David, you've sinned against a ton of people. But he's the blessed man in that moment, and he knows, no, 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 I have sinned against a lot of those people. But my first wrong is against God, a holy God. But that's not the way you think in Castle Doubt. <coughs> Before clarity, often there's deception. In the castle doubt, we believe God can be tempted with evil. We think such things. Those, that's what we deal with. That's what gets us through our brought you know, meal of, of nastiness as we digest it in the, in the slums of the dungeon. 
We, we live on those lies. We, we, we invite Satan in again. We invite the lies of demons. We, we, we entertain the doctrines of, 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 of those that are damned. And we say, teach me. Teach me. Because I, I need a teacher. I know one outside the dungeon up there. And he, I don't want nothing to do with him right now. So teach me. And we feed. And we, and we take these lies in. This is how a deceived man and woman thinks. When you think like this, you don't find freedom. You find bondage. That's who he is. That's the deceived man. That's how he thinks. James says, you believe lies. God cannot be tempted with evil. God himself tempts no one in the way you would define it. Now, some of us are confused because we're like, wait a second. I thought God does test us. Tempt and test are the same word here. But James is going to help you to see because here's what's awesome about point two. Okay, point one is like, hey, who he is, blessed man, and how he thinks. Just dwell on God. Point two, where we're kind of teaching, James is like, don't be deceived. Okay, who he is. He's a deceived man. And 13, don't believe lies, right? What he thinks. But then we get an explanation on into 14 and 15 dealing with temptation. This is unique to this section because James is from the onset who's helping sufferers. He's wanting you to realize that like what's good and beautiful and glorious is frustratingly simple to you. But what is like wicked and worthy of death, you make this twisted thing. And James is like, let me show you why. And the Holy Spirit just writes through him and gives you perfect clarity about something called your sin. And trust me, when I preach to you today, I'm preaching to me. But let me preach to you for a second. No one can twist the words of a false confession about your sin than you. No one. No one can dress up sin for decades like you. Trust me. No one can have the truth of the gospel and believe it and go into heaven having disobeyed God in one of his commands for decades and knew it than you. That is possible. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand justification by grace and faith alone. Yeah, God purchased all your good works, but what's in view there is the understanding that you also have a bunch of evil works. Some of them you won't be rid of until you're raised. So are you up for, James says, taking a deeper dive into understanding why a person who is deceived, who thinks this way, God is a liar, why they do that? Well, if you are, you're going to receive now, I think, some wonderful tools to kill sin. Look with me at verse 14 and 15 again. But, so contrast it with who he is and how he thinks now, right in the middle here. Each person, so every person is tempted. You want to know about testing? Okay, here you go. You're tempted, he says, when you are lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we're deceived, we believe lies about God and us. That is established, right? We've established that. But James says, those temptations to sin do not come from God. They come from your own sinful desires. Now check this out. God will use your sinful, evil desires, your old sin nature. He will use it in His providence and in the mystery of His power to allow it in your life. He will. That's why Jesus said it's necessary that temptations come. Testings come. But there is a point. Why the same word can be used in Greek here is helpful. And you need to understand this. There comes a point in every temptation. 
So listen, every temptation to sin, it actually starts before it goes evil. And we just have such a hard time even understanding anything but the evil. But every one of them start from a place of no corruption. It would point you back to the new, the, the first state of creation in this sense. It's a good way to parallel this. Before Adam fell into sin, what did he have? The warning of God not to disobey God's commands and the ability to do what? Not disobey. He had that. It was pure. We must believe that. Well, corresponding to that, in the new life you have in Christ, Christian, you have this new nature. You have an ability. So every temptation, test, trial, suffering that comes to you, every one of them exists in this space for a moment. But James wants you to see that God doesn't test you beyond that. He does, he does test you. He allows your sufferings and evils. He allows evil to happen to you. And he's still good. Sometimes that's mysterious. But what, one thing you need to know is right there in that space that needs to be recovered. Because what James wants to point out is what comes next. In the same temptation, another level of temptation has now been introduced. You have crossed the barrier in your arrogance and pride and love for sin. And you have forsaken God who could keep you from the temptation. And now you're doing what? You're experiencing the lure of that temptation. Notice, I'm steps back here. <laughs> you know what a lure is? It's a fishing term. Anybody ever been fishing before? I hate fishing. I grew up fishing a little bit, but we grew up hunting more. We got our own lures and hunting, but they're nothing like fishing. Fishing has 10 trillion lures, right? I mean, it's just nuts. Like Guys can have like 14,000 ways to trick a bass. I think that says a lot more about how dumb we are rather than how dumb the, the bass is. I'm just saying, right? Um, that being said, though, all these different lures that fit the right circumstance under and above and on top of the water and near a log and under this, this certain season, right? And, all the, and this is why the, the, old, the old King James talks about diver's temptation. I love that because it, it just is a new word in your brain because no one says divers anymore. But it's like this idea of like this overload, like it... it the, the amount of resource that the, the Satan, the Satan and demons and your flesh has to grab something and entice you with it, it would shock you. If God lifted the veil on your heart and he showed you all the ways you can be tempted to sin, you would run from you. <laughs> the idea here is, is that, that it, is, it is allurement and an enticement of what's already within and it brings it out. You've crossed into that, James says, when you now have this sinful desire. Now look, James adopts a graphic illustration of what happens. He picks up the image of pregnancy. For James, conception is when the unchecked desire crosses into sinful thought. That's the barrier I just described for you. And how does he say it? When desire is conceived. That's that moment where you didn't trust God's deliverance and now you crossed the line into temptation. You're just tempted in this moment. All me and you understand it to be now is the temptation. It can still, there's still a way of escape. There always is. But James says the conception in this pregnancy happens then when those desires are conceived. And if we're thinking about a pregnancy, the trimester, right? One of, one of three, right? The, the parts that grow compared to these sin, are the sinful acts. Oftentimes when you are defined by a sin, its ugliest manifestation, let's take adultery for instance, its ugliest explanation, right, its ugliest end is a ruined sexual ethic. Ruinous, right? But if you back up all the way, the trimester of that pregnant sin was what? The first lustful thought. Right? The, the first time you said, all right, yeah, let's talk a little bit longer past the work moment. 
Hey, let's take just a minute to just enjoy this awesome show. And for some, you know, not all, I mean, you can't be legalistic in these efforts, but, but here's the point. Every one of your gross manifestations, they can be tracked, can't they? James says when, when the desire was conceived, you crossed it, now you're depending on something else. And in that, if that mind doesn't change, deceive man, it will grow and fester. That's what sin does. Now, we're, pick, we're talking about a baby here, right? So we shouldn't talk about festering. But no, we actually should. James finishes his analogy, doesn't he? Birth. Birth is compared to a stillborn here. Fully grown, fully exposed, fully dead. When desires are conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. This is the end result of choosing sin and sinful thought, death. The blind sufferer who chooses lies, hoping for life, but only finds death at the end of their thinking. You see what this brings now to totality for us? How we think in suffering is a lot more serious than we realize, isn't it? Isn't it? No one that holds their face crying because their marriage just dissolved into the sin that they were in or their, their, their business just collapsed into the, the crooked ventures that they were running, right? No one whose life is just ruined in that moment of addiction. None of them can sit there and think that they didn't have initial thought as a Christian. None of them can say with a clear conscience that they're in Christ that God wasn't always trying to teach them these things. No one has to bury a stillborn baby of sin. No one has to do that with the faith that God can somehow once again resurrect it and bring out of the gross explanation that they don't have for their sin life. No one should have to get to that place, James says. Why? Because if they're steadfast under trial, they will take seriously those little spaces of thought. I hope you feel the weight of application that can come behind such teaching. Brother, sister, how will you think in times of testing? Will you now for a moment pause and consider the seriousness of being tempted to sin, even this last week? A sensitive conscience walks around in this world by the power of the Holy Spirit, aware of diverse temptations, being made aware even in the moment. And is not our song true? We need thee every hour. Does the one who's tempted not say, I need thee every second? I need the every waking moment of my life if I'm going to avoid the traps and the pitfalls. When you're tempted to sin, ask yourself, are you blaming circumstances? If they just weren't those kids? If it wasn't just that boss? If it wasn't just that spouse? If I just had better weather? If they would just drive a little bit better? I don't know. But God's after all of you and, he, and he's after your heart and your mind. Don't blame your circumstances. Don't blame others. Don't blame yourself. Don't blame God. Don't. Receive medicine for the sick. This is why you should read books like James over and over again. Because James tells you, do not be deceived. Don't be like he is. We've studied. Don't be like he thinks. You don't want what he has. Why? My beloved brothers, listen to me. My brothers, my sisters in Christ. Every good and perfect gift. Oh, I hope this is a, a reminder to you how good God's word is, right? Hey, hey, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You hear that resurrection tone that this has? Listen, some of you, you, you do in confession like me, bury stillborn babies of your sin's manifestation. But isn't God the one who, like a kind of first fruits, a firstborn among his creatures, can't he breathe because of the gospel of Jesus Christ into death life? Can't he bring out of your evil certain goods and certain hopes? Listen to me. I'm going to finish two illustrations in conclusion here. One, there's Christian. There's hopeful. There's the knife. There is hopelessness and the death of their despair and despondency in the castle doubt. And you know what happens in John Bunyan? It's laughable. Dude has spilt, if you read the book, like five pages on how they got there. And then in one little sentence on a page, it dawns on Christian. And he remembers, ah, hopeful. What a fool I've been. I've had the key of promise on my chest the whole time. <laughs> I told you this last week. But it's just shocking. And, but, and he goes to the lock, boom, it's open. And he goes to the second lock of the gate, and boom, it's open. And the path is clear, and they get back. And you know what they do? They write the book of James. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right, John Bunyan's, but, but, but they basically do. Here's James, half-brother of Jesus, denied the Lord himself, didn't think he was God. Jesus has risen. James has faith, and he's fallen into some of these things. And you know what he does? God, the Holy Spirit, rides through him, and he builds a stake right there, right there in the space of his mind between like the hard way and bypath meadow. And he writes on it, and he says, a warning to future pilgrims. And I think he's writing it for his own self, right? But a warning to future pilgrims. Blessed is the man who goes steadfast this way under the suffering. And do be not deceived, because on this side there is a castle of doubt. There is a giant despair, and he will ring you out. Don't go that way. And he sets up a way to think right there in his mind. And so the pilgrims go on. They face other horrors. Second illustration. Lewis writes, in a grief observed, cancer and cancer and cancer. My mother, my father, my wife. I wonder who is next in the queue, end quote. Lewis had lost the ones he loved all of his life to disease and death. All of them perished under sickness and it wrecked him. But it didn't wreck him when he was a boy. And it didn't wreck him in 1940 when he wrote clearly and taught about it. It wrecked him in 1960. After all that time of knowing that God was faithful. How does it end? Well, listen, it's a work of philosophy. So it actually has about 100 endings if you go read A Grief Observed. And you won't agree with all of them. So just mind, mindful reader, beware. However, C.S. Lewis, like all sufferers, he realized that he was using God to get to his idea of heaven. He was using God in his suffering to get to his idea or his conclusion of peace with God. And rather than enjoying God as his peace on the way, a blind man instead of a blessed man is what he concludes. When he realizes it, he writes something brilliant. Let me share it with you. Quote, he asked himself in his journal, Am I, for instance, just sidling or sidelining back to God because I know that if there's any road to H, any road to his dead wife, if there's any road to H, it runs through him? Am I doing that? But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal but as a road, not as the end but as a means, you're not really approaching him at all. That's what was really wrong with all those popular pictures of happy reunions on the further shore. Not the simple-minded and very earthly images, 
but the fact that they make an end of what we can get only as a byproduct of the true end. Heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from under our feet. We shall see that there was never any problem at all. Don't you want that kind of conclusion? Don't you want to make it to the day where all the problems as they go away don't give you clarity about all the times when you just knew by faith that it was going to be okay? Look, be honest, guys. There's times when you're suffering, it's just not going to be okay. It's just hard. But that day, Lewis realized where skies that were once gray actually fall away, and then they give way to Jesus, and you see him face to face. This is the goal of the blessed man in suffering, and it is powerful. It is powerful. You have no more faithful husband than Jesus. Jesus is the faithful husband. Jesus is the one that will get you to the end. Jesus is the one, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ that James is servant to. He, he is the one in view. He brought you forth by the word of his truth. He'll keep you by the word of his truth. You will be with him in the word of that truth forever. That is what topples a crooked mind. That's what the church believes. Do we? Today, God has prepared you. Will you suffer well? Suffer. Today, God is with you. Will you grab the key of promise? Will you trust Him? This is my encouragement to all of us. Let's pray. God, thank you for James. Thank you for the Word of God, your Word. Uh, Lord, it is good uh, that we would even be tempted to sin. For we know that you would work our temptations, God, for your glory and for our good. Lord, we want to be a people that believe that even our trials, our afflictions, God, they're not wasted. Every one of them shall give account, not in the way we understand them, having gone through them with faith intact or with faith destroyed. They will not be judged according to that. They'll be judged according to Jesus Christ. They'll be judged according to the faithfulness that Christ had when He hung on a cross and He declared over us, it is finished. They will be judged based on His righteousness and not our own. And so we seek with all of our heart to follow Him. Let us be people who ask in faith with no doubting. Keep us, God, from our unstable ways. But we don't want the double-minded man. Help us to be the blessed man that stands steadfast under suffering. When we stood that, God, and we received the crown of life, we will know you, God, have promised that you love us. And then, Lord, we will know that we were brought into your kingdom. You chose us. God, may that permeate. May we be like Peter, not drawing near to the idea of somehow working up love for you, but knowing that we're going through what we're going through because you love us. That it is because of your care for us you would ever use us. And Father, if we ever get that backwards, forgive us. We want to be used by you. Help us to respond in song and to pray together as a church now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.